0: It was good to sing the doxology together this morning as God's people. We open our mouths to worship Him. We lift our hearts to Him. And we continue to do so now through the ministry of His Holy Word. The text we're going to spend our time together in this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 18 together. So please turn with me there to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read those verses in just a moment. This letter of Philippians was one written by the Apostle Paul. And he's, he's actually um, writing this letter from Rome. He's under house arrest and uh, awaiting his, his trial. And he writes this letter to the church there in Philippi. It was a church that he had founded on his second missionary journey. And this letter is, is really one of thanksgiving. Paul says thank you to the Philippians for the gift that they had sent him. And it's, it's also a letter of, of pastoral encouragement. He's encouraging the saints there in Philippi essentially to link arms in the proclamation of the gospel and to do all with joy in their hearts regardless of their circumstances. And so it's a letter of thanksgiving and a letter of of rejoicing. In the passage we have before us, we're going to see that Paul was very much concerned that the believers there in Philippi live obedient Christian lives. As we read together, we're going to note several ways that we, just like those Philippians, are to live as Christ's people in the present age. So if you're able, will you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Father, we are aware this morning of our need for you and of our dependence upon you for all things and specifically this morning we ask that you would come and help us we want to understand your word we want to know you more we want to be changed and so we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts make us more like Christ your son we pray in his name, amen. Some of you, some of you may enjoy putting together puzzles. Um, I, I know a few in our family enjoy this kind of thing. I'm picturing a, a card table in the living room with, with some kind of puzzle laid out on that table, and... Um, those of you who enjoy such a thing would be able to tell, tell me better than I can tell you about the method uh, to, to put these puzzles together. Some, some choose, kind of depending on the puzzle, to, to pick the four. Maybe you find the four corner pieces and you say, at least we know uh, where these go. And uh, then, then maybe another method is, is to find some of the edge pieces you say, at least I know these are, these are some of the outside. And then, again, depending on the puzzle, maybe you, maybe you start to put um, pieces together that, that look similar, various colors and so forth. And, and so you're, you're working here. But perhaps the most important piece is the box top. Without the box top, we really have, we have no idea what, what this puzzle is supposed to look like. And so we, we set the, the box top up often, right, on, on the table where it's in plain view. And as we're working on the puzzle, we lift our eyes and, and remind ourselves of what this, uh, this is, uh, this picture that we're trying to create. As we approach Scripture, we can, we can use this, this analogy of putting together a puzzle to help us understand what we're reading. I'm not saying that the Bible is a big puzzle. We have to try to figure out uh, how it fits together. Rather, what I'm saying is that like a puzzle, when we come to various passages of Scripture, we recognize that each passage is part of the whole. Each passage is is part of the whole. And and the whole, the box top, as it were, is, is God's plan of redemption. God's plan to redeem a people for himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Broadly, this means that, that the book of Isaiah, for example, fits in. It's a, it's a piece. It's part of the whole. In the same way that the gospel of Matthew fits into this plan of redemption. The book of Philippians here this morning is a piece We can use this picture to zoom in even further then and recognize that not only the books themselves, but the various passages within the books fit together to create a beautiful picture by God's good design. And my point in starting here with this analogy is is to highlight the fact that these verses that we just read together, they're to be read in context And that is specifically the context of this letter of Philippians as a whole and then even more immediately the verses that come just before this particular passage. So if we back up just a few verses into chapter 1 and verse 27, we read this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so, here we learn something about Paul's aim in writing this letter to the Philippians. He's writing to encourage the believers to, to live lives that are consistent with the truths of the gospel. And they're to do this whether Paul is there with them or not. They're to strive side by side. Working together, not against one another. Working together in the bold proclamation of the gospel. And then if we keep going into chapter 2, Paul tells the readers to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. And then he writes one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Have this mind, Philippians. Have this mind, namely the mind of Christ. He goes on to explain how Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became man, he took on flesh. He humbled himself. He was obedient to the point of death and God exalted him above every name that is named. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then, and then we come to verse 12. Therefore, Says Paul. Therefore, my beloved. Do we hear something about Paul's pastoral heart? My beloved. I'm going to give you some instructions, but you need to hear it like this beloved. It's a term of endearment. Beloved, he he may be speaking of God's love for the people, but certainly of Paul's affection for the people. Therefore, Beloved, because of Christ and who you are in him, because of his example of humility, because of his example of obedience, Beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only while I was with you, but even while I'm away, and then he gives instruction for what obedient Christian living looks like. There's context for us. The puzzle piece, as it were, of Philippians 2, 12 through 18 fits here. Let's consider these verses together. First, what we note is obedient Christian living means we work out our salvation. Obedient Christian living means we work out our salvation. Please look with me at the middle of verse 12. Work out your salvation, Paul says, and do so with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we see quite clearly here in these two verses two things. We see the responsibility of man, human responsibility, and we see the sovereignty of God set right next to one another. It's beautiful. It's really remarkable. And so we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean here when he says that the Philippians there are to work out their salvation? He can't be commanding the Philippians to save themselves by working or to somehow create their salvation. This would contradict Everything we know about salvation that we read in Scripture, namely that salvation is a gift from God. It's a gift that is to be received by faith alone. Not something to be worked for. Salvation is all of grace. We see this in passages such as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says this, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In order to understand Paul's instruction here to, to work out your salvation, we need to take a few moments to think about salvation broadly. And by that I mean we must, we must recognize that salvation consists of, of several parts or salvation has, has very, uh, various aspects. A rather simple way for us to think about salvation is to use these three words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Let's consider each of these. First, justification. Justification. What does this mean? To be justified, according to Scripture, is to be declared righteous. It's to be declared righteous. The word justified, is a, it's a legal term. It's one found in a courtroom. And it's in, in, as it relates to salvation, it's, it has to do with the judge of all the world making this declaration, I pronounce you justified. I declare you righteous. Listen to how the Scripture talks about justification. Here is Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous... The question, of course, for us to consider is, how can unrighteous, sinful people, that's us, how can, how can we as, as unrighteous, sinful people be declared righteous by the infinitely holy, just God? That should give us pause. The answer is Christ To be justified is a declaration by almighty God and it's based on the work of his son When a person comes to faith we might say comes to faith in Christ that is when a person by God's grace by God's grace God moves in a person's heart person's heart reveals the sin that is there reveals the need for the sa- for a savior the person repents and believes what happens that person believes that Jesus Christ is the only savior and at that moment the person receives the righteousness of Christ this perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer. It's reckoned to your account. Justified. Christ gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin. Sometimes we call this the great exchange. My sin, in its fullness... Is laid upon the Savior, and in exchange, He gives us His perfect righteousness. This is a one time event with eternal consequence. In this regard, we might say we have been saved. Justification have been saved declared righteous because of what the lord jesus christ has accomplished the scripture says in romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus this aspect of our salvation is all of the work of god We don't contribute in any way to our justification. It is all of God. God declares us righteous based on the work of Christ. But there's another aspect of our salvation, and we call it sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby a believer is is conformed to the image of Christ, when we talk about this at home, I, I think about the, being, being conformed to something. If you're going to take a, 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 a pitcher and fill it with lemonade or whatever you're going to pour into this, what happens? That, that liquid, you, you pour into it and, it and it's conformed to the shape of the container. This process of of sanctification is just that. It is a process whereby the believer is conformed to the image of Christ. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Unlike justification, where we contribute nothing, in sanctification, we are active participants. In the strength that God supplies, we, we put off the old man and we, we put on Christ. We say no to evil and we say yes to good. The, the, the point I'm making here is that in sanctification, in sanctification, In sanctification, I want to be quick to say this we are are absolutely reliant upon God. We're going to see this a bit in just a moment. I want to be quick to say that we are reliant upon God. Nevertheless, we are active, we're pursuing Christ. This differs from justification. So, in sanctification, we say we have been saved, it's a declaration. Sanctification, we are, we are being saved. The final aspect of our salvation is glorification. And this is when our salvation comes to completion. We'll be in the presence of our Savior for all of eternity. No more sin, no more sorrow, but only perfection and beauty. And our glorification is sure to come. We will be saved. Romans 8 and verse 30 says this this is Paul kind of laying out for us salvation. He says, "And those whom he predestined, he also called; and those whom he called, he also justified; and those whom he justified, he also glorified." So let's return now to these verses in the passage that we just read. Paul instructs the readers to to work out their salvation and to do so with fear and trembling. Given what we've just said about salvation, then we we may conclude that that Paul is referring to their sanctification. And his instruction here is to, to work it out. To work out your salvation is to be living out your salvation in every respect. We put to death the deeds of the body. We do battle against sin and our fleshly desires. We refuse to gossip and slander. We fight against the sins of, of bitterness and jealousy. We're increasingly repulsed by self-righteousness and pride and its million manifestations. We cringe we, we, we cringe at, at vulgar speech and lewd conduct. We're grieved by it. Why? We've been changed. Christ comes and the word is regenerates. He gives us a new heart. New affections. He's changed us. He is changing us and we will be changed so Paul comes here and says work out your salvation we abhor what is evil and we love what is good we love God supremely and and we love his people we look to our Savior and seek to imitate him in his living we do this by serving others and by esteeming others better than ourselves this is what it means to work out our salvation and we do so with fear and trembling. Does that sound strange? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Fear and trembling carries with it a, a sense of sobriety about life and eternity. We aren't. We aren't cavalier and and flippant in our outlook in life. Why? For we recognize that what we do now in the present impacts eternity. Fear and trembling. We recognize our frailty. We recognize our propensity to sin We acknowledge our great dependence on the living God moment by moment by moment. We walk humbly before God and before one another. We see our dependence on His mercy day after day, fear and trembling. In this letter to the Philippians, Paul expresses great concern that the, that the believers there in Philippi work together they link arms as it were they link arms in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord he wants them to be of one mind of one spirit working together at the end of the letter he even urges these two ladies Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord there's something going on between them Paul says hey ladies you got to get this right So we conclude that while we're called to work out our salvation, both in our individual lives, we we do so as a body, in community with one another. In fact, communal living is, is really the thrust of this section. Work out your salvation among one another. So the command here is, is clear. The, the imperative is to work out your salvation and to do so with, with fear and trembling. But we would make a grave error if we stopped here. Verse 13 is absolutely crucial for a right understanding of what it means to live an obedient Christian life. Notice what it says. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This is the ground. This is the ground for Paul's argument. Work out your salvation, believer, for God is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Underneath the the believer's Working out of their salvation is this this ground of, of the sovereignty of God. There is no more sure foundation upon which we ground our lives than the sovereignty of God. To say God is sovereign is to say that he controls all things. He rules over all things. God's plans are irrevocable. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You could turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 46, in verse 9, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. This is the God whom we serve To confess that we believe in the sovereignty of God is to trust in his eternal decree. We trust him. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people to redeem for himself. He predestined a people for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. We we, we might say that, that Paul's belief in the sovereignty of God compelled him to write in Philippians chapter 1 this familiar verse, verse 6, that says this, and I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. What God began, he will, he will complete. It is certain. But notice that this did not, this, this reality. That God will, God is, is, is sovereign over all and he will bring to completion what he has started did not prevent Paul from exhorting the believers to work out their salvation. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We, we, we have to recognize that even in this, our our ability to, to work out our salvation. It's only because God is at work in us. That's what it's saying. God works to will and to work. To will, is that's my my motivation. It's willing. And by action, that's doing. These things are possible. Why? It's because God is at work in me. And in each person who is in Christ Jesus, God provides the, the will for me to engage in spiritual growth. He provides the, the work for me to engage in spiritual growth. Repetition is good. I suppose the danger of repetition is sometimes it becomes, it becomes uh, we, 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 we kind of say, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, I know, I know. Nearly every Sunday, Pastor Daniel closes with this benediction from Ephesians 3. Are you hearing it now? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within us. We should stop and consider what's what's being said here. God is able to do this. He's, He's working in us. Remember the words of our Savior to his disciples in John 15. He says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Every analogy breaks down at some point and, and some quicker than others, but perhaps a, a picture of some kind is helpful for us at this point. Th- think about, p- p- picture a, a boat, maybe a, a, an old ship. This, this ship is, has three large sails, and it's out in, the, out in the middle of this big body of water, a, a big lake, and, and the water is as smooth as glass. Because there's not a whisper of wind. Now the captain of that ship, he can, he can turn this, the, the rudder this way and that and this way and that and nothing is going to happen. But soon, a, a breeze starts to blow. And wind starts to come and, and what happens? The wind starts to fill those sails and the ship starts to move along. And now the captain turns the rudder and the ship starts to move in the desired direction. Can we say that's a little bit like what it is to live the Christian life? Apart from, like the sail with, with no wind, a, a, apart from God working in us, we're, we're doing nothing. We're, we're going nowhere. But God at work in us. We're dependent upon God to will and to work. God gets the glory in this. We've been called to live a life of obedience and we obey by working out our salvation for God is at work in us. The next thing we note is that obedient Christian living means that we do all without grumbling. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In these verses, we hear the words, these, these, these words, they, they, they call to mind Old Testament Israel. Back in Exodus 15, we, we, we read there, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And then in, into chapter 16, it says again, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Grumbling, grumbling dishonors God. This word translated here grumbling has been defined in in, in one dictionary as, as an utterance made in a low tone of voice the context that goes on indicates whether the utterance is one of discontent or satisfaction we know what this is utterance made in a low tone of voice Some form of this this word is found numerous times in the New Testament, maybe around 15 times, and and almost every time it it carries this negative connotation. Certainly, this is the case here in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is instructing the believers don't grumble, don't be like Old Testament Israel. In another letter, Paul, Paul warned the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, he, he warned them, don't put Christ to the test, as some of the Israelites had done in time past and were destroyed by serpents. Don't grumble, said Paul. Some of the Israelites did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so here the instruction is, is to do all without grumbling. Consider what we're doing when we when we grumble. When we grumble, we're expressing our, our, our discontentment, discontent or, or dissatisfaction. Ugh, oh, this job again today. Ugh, oh, these kids. Same love you, but these kids same problems day after day. This old house in in this old neighborhood. If only this relationship weren't so difficult. And on, on and on we go. We, we, we find many ways to, to grumble. But consider what we're doing when we grumble. We're, we're, we're actually saying something about God. At its, at its core, I think uh, grumbling is a, is a theological issue that says something like this, God... I don't need this in my life right now. God, I don't deserve this. Or, God, are you sure that this is best for me? Instead of grumbling, what what are we to do? We must, we must entrust ourselves to our good and gracious all-wise God who has said that he is working in all things for our good. He's working all things together for good for those who love him. That includes the difficulties in our lives. When we're tempted to grumble, we might say instead, Lord, Lord, I don't understand. This is not the path that I would have chosen but help me trust you. Help me trust you in this. Oh God, give me grace. Give me grace to believe that, that you are working for good, even though I can't see it here. This applies to the, 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 the big situations in our lives and, and the most mundane things. Are we not in awe that we serve a God who is both transcendent, which means He's he's overall, and He's imminent, which means He's near? He's concerned about every detail of your life. He knows the hairs on your head, He knows the sparrow that falls. God, help me trust you in this. I don't see it, I need to see it clearly. Give me your eyes to see. That's something different than grumbling. The instruction here is to do all without grumbling or disputing. Disputing could also be translated arguing. Again, the context. Remember the context. It's important here. We've already noted Paul's concern is that that these Philippians link arms with one another. They work out their salvation together. Communal living But this doesn't happen. Proclaiming the gospel together doesn't happen when we're we're arguing among one another. What a tragedy it is when when believers nitpick and criticize one another over trivial matters. This is not the way that that it should be. Remember the Savior whom we serve. Remember his example of servanthood Remember his example of humility and and seek to imitate him when we remember that God is is working in us and we do all things without grumbling or disputing. We shine like lights in the world. That's the picture. We shine. We we are uh, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We know this, but the world is dark. The, the, the world is dark, but we shine the light of Christ. May we, brothers and sisters, may we not be known as people who grumble and argue. Think back over the last week where your conversation is marked by, by grumbling at work when things go, aren't going well and, and, and maybe the boss is not doing things. Did you, did, you, did you jump on the grumble bus, as it were, or at home, we grumbling, even if it's just in our heart. Paul says, "Don't, don't, don't do that. When when we do so, we fail to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We we blend in. When we do so, our our witness is compromised. Our witness of of the God who has redeemed us, the God whom we serve. This is." Um, this, this is a time of year that, that uh, nearly every young person looks forward to with great anticipation. Some of you so much so you can hardly contain yourself. It is time to go back to school. And you're looking forward to this. And uh, some of you in preparation for school, you had to go to the eye doctor. And uh, I'm thinking of one of these vision tests where you're, you're tested to see uh, what colors you can see. And uh, maybe you can picture this. It's, it's the one where you're handed a book with, with all the pictures in it. And um, on, on some of those pages, there's, there's, there's pictures of all these little circles. There's circles of various sizes, and they have, they're, they're different colors. And the point of this, this test is, and embedded among these circles are some numbers. And the point of the test is for you to look at the book and, and, and to tell the person who's facilitating the test what number is there. And depending on your ability to see certain colors, some of those numbers just pop right off the page. And other ones you look at and and you really struggle to see them because they look very similar to all these little dots that that surround the numbers. When we we grumble and dispute among one another, we're like those hard-to-see numbers in the vision test book. We blend in. But when we hold fast to the word of truth, when we keep our eyes fixed on our beloved Savior and entrust ourselves to him and in his strength, we we do all without grumbling and disputing, we shine. We shine. And God is glorified as we walk in obedience. We are children of God. And the evidence that we are such is found then in our conduct. When we abstain from grumbling, we abstain from disputing among one another. We shine as lights in the dark world. Like the Philippians, we live in the midst of a crooked and and twisted generation. But we see this as an opportunity to shine. By God's grace, we're different. It's an opportunity to to proclaim the gospel to a world who is so desperate for him. So obedient Christian living means we, we work out our salvation. We do all without grumbling, and finally, we rejoice in our service. This section closes here, verses 17 and 18. Uh, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's clear from the beginning of Philippians to the end, from from the start to the finish, that, that Paul is really not concerned about his life. He's not not concerned about preserving his life at all costs. Rather, his only concern is that Christ be exalted. That the name of Christ be lifted high. That the gospel of Christ be proclaimed. And so he was ready to be poured out. He was ready to be poured out on behalf of the saints. He rejoiced in this and called the Philippians to rejoice as well. He rejoiced in his sufferings and even in his imprisonment because he knew that God was using it to make Christ more fully known. He was, Paul was able to, to live above the fray. He didn't get caught up in the clamoring after approval or popularity or, or by laboring to make sure that he was never to be mistreated in any way. No, no. Instead, he pursued the Lord Jesus Christ. He devoted his, his life to making Christ known. And he was content to, to pour out his life, to be spent for the gospel. And he called the Philippians to join him in rejoicing in this. Four times in this verse and a half, Paul uses the word for rejoice. I'm glad and Rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice in serving the living Christ and all that that entails. Paul rejoiced in being poured out. Think about the relationships that you're in right now with other believers. Think about some of the hard things that you're working through together. Are you rejoicing in being poured out for the sake of Christ? Paul did. And we're called to do the same. But how? This sounds like an impossible task. We look at Christ. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We go home and we start memorizing Philippians 1, or 2, 1 through 11. And we pray through it regularly. We ask the Lord to help us do nothing from selfish ambition, to get over ourselves and, and to seek to imitate our Savior. We meditate on the stunning reality that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man. And he poured out his life for sinners like you and I so that we might live He rescued me from eternal destruction, from the wrath of God. He lifted me out of the filth that I was in. I was once dead in sin, and he made me alive. He has given me a new heart and new affections. He's given me his Holy Spirit who now dwells in me and enables me to live for him. Rejoice. Rejoice, believer. We rejoice in our our service Our lives are not our own. We we pour them out on behalf of Christ for one another. And here we find reason to rejoice. We rejoice in our service. We began with this picture of a a jigsaw puzzle, fitting these pieces in to help us think about how, how each piece of Scripture fits together we can use that same picture for us to think about our lives. We've considered obedient Christian living. We live obedient Christian lives, what? When we work out our salvation, when we do all without grumbling, when we rejoice in our service. The truth underneath all of this is that God is in us, He's working in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure that undergirds the command. So as followers of Christ in 2023, our lives are pieces of this puzzle that fit into God's great plan to redeem a people who will worship him in his presence for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, in the strength that God supplies, may we live obedient Christian lives. Lord, we bless your name this morning. Thank you for your word. Give us strength to proclaim you as we leave here today. In Christ's name, amen.